Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning, and I'm glad it's cool in here. We have new air conditioners this summer. If you were with us last summer, you'd be hot. And uh, it's really cool today, so I'm thrilled to see you. Let me ask you a question as I get my mic straight here. Um, have you ever said these words, either out loud or to yourself? Lord, get me out of this. Help me out of this situation. I mean, real desperate. I, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be um, in this uh, working relationship anymore. I, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. I, I don't want to be in, in this state anymore. I feel like I'm, I'm ready to go home and I've spent enough time in, in treatment or therapy or the hospital. I want out of here. And deliverance is what you're asking for. And so in our study on the Psalms, we tried to figure out 150 Psalms in the Bible, how to look at them, and we started our series with this idea, how to cry out honestly, openly and honestly, learning to say what's in our heart in a way that is appropriate and articulate. And you go to the Psalms to help you find the vocabulary and the words. Today we're turning a new leaf and we're gonna talk about how to respond appropriately. And today will be a prayer of deliverance. It's a praise of deliverance. But you might say, oh, isn't any response appropriate? Let me just say that I see parents all the time uh, coaching their children on how to respond appropriately, right? I've, got, I've even gotten some high school thank you cards for gifts. My, my wife and I sent some high school graduates, right? And you get the handwritten card and you can tell it's the third one ever, right? But they're learning. You're learning this. In our culture, this is an appropriate way to say. And I watch dads with their sons. Uh, shaking hands and saying, this is how we interact in our culture. Look him in the eye and shake his hand firmly and greet him. Well, how do you respond appropriately? Well, when God moves in your life, believe it or not, there might, we could be too casual or we could be incomplete. And so a moment of deliverance, this Psalm will teach us both how to respond. It will guide us how to respond. It'll be really good. A few, um, a few weeks ago, I heard the story of a, of a soldier who was needing deliverance, not from the battlefield, um, but new, he was new in, in the military, and he was in his barracks, and he was going through the training, and he was doing everything all day long, and it was very exhausting. And at the end of the day, as he finished his day, he would retire to his bed, his bunk, and this open room, and he would reach under there and grab his little handheld uh, Bible, and he'd read his Bible, and he might kneel or just silently say some prayers. Uh, another soldier across the aisle from him took offense to this and criticized him and ridiculed him. And this went on for a while. This is when you pray, Lord, I need out of this troop. I need out of this barrack. I need him out of this barrack, right? These, if you've ever been uh, persecuted, ridiculed, belittled, marginalized because of your faith or because of what your, uh, your belief system, you know it's really difficult because it's so much about who you are. Well, this culminated in a pair of work boots or being thrown at this soldier from the opposing team, so to speak, hit him in the head, they were covered in mud. And as he was praying and in his bunk, I don't know what you would have done there. This is what the soldier did. He polished the boots. He cleaned them, he polished them, and he left them at the foot of the other soldier's bed ready for inspection. 
That act of, that unnatural act, that, res, that unnatural response in a, in a moment where you want deliverance um, got everyone in the barracks' attention. It was a great testimony, not only to the character of the soldier, but to the God that he served. And it actually led people to be sympathetic and some to trust in Christ. Times of being in the middle of deliverance, it's where you need to be delivered, it's hard. So if you're there today, um, I pray that this Psalm would help you not only know what to do upon deliverance, but what to do while you're waiting. And so each week I'm very aware, our elders and staff are very aware, uh, because some of you we know personally, we know the burdens that you carry, others we don't know as well. But I know each week some of you just, you just getting through the doors. You're just getting here, discouraged, um, brokenhearted about life. So I wanna just pray that God would use his word, my words, to minister to our church. Lord Jesus, we pause and we ask that you, um, that your presence is felt here, that your Holy Spirit has full access to our hearts and our lives. Lord, would you uh, minister deeply through this psalm to us. For those that are in the need of deliverance, Lord, I pray that you'd hear their prayer. And more than anything, I pray that they would know that you're near, that you're attentive, and that it's not over. And so, Lord, meet us here today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Um, so to help us understand the 34th Psalm, we look at the subscript. It's just a little heading under the number. This is what it says. Uh, of David, a Psalm of David, a bunch of them, um, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, uh, who drove him away and he left. So uh, last week we gave you the whole rundown on David's life. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 8 through about 22. Though David was anointed king, uh, Saul was still king. And when and how that transference of power would take place, David didn't know. And I don't guess Saul did either, but Saul tried to kill David himself. Then he made David's death a point of national security, and he put a price tag on David's head and would chase him around <laughs> for a decade, trying to find him and to end his life. That's when you cry out for deliverance. When David left, he went to the king of Gath, a little community near the Mediterranean Sea, and um, that king's name is Achish, and the, the title for the king is Abimelech. So uh, there's a pharaoh in Egypt, there's an Abimelech in, in Gath. In Baton Rouge, I don't know if you notice it, if you're new here, you might hear us do this. Uh, people in Baton Rouge, they, they put the word the before stuff. Where are you going? I'm going to the Home Depot, right? I'm going to the Home Depot. Not Home Depot, the Home Depot. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, we would say, oh, he went to see the Abimelech. Not Abimelech, the Abimelech, right? The, the children of Israel were, were released from the Pharaoh. Not Pharaoh, the Pharaoh. So that's what's happening right here. And here's what it says in, in 1 Samuel 21. I'm going to read it for you. It's on the screen behind me. That day, David fled from Saul, and he went to Achish, king of Gath. 
But the servants of Achish said to him, Hey, isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousand, David his ten thousands. And you thought TikTok was new. It's been around a long time. They know this guy. They, you, you see people singing about him. Well, David took these words to heart because he thought he was going to the enemy's camp, would be an ally, and they know who he is. Next verses say, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in, in their hands, he acted like a madman, marking, uh, making marks on the doors of the gate, letting saliva run down his beard. Wow, he went nuts. And then Achish says this, um, look at this man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fella here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And he kicks him out. And David is delivered. Last week we saw that he went to a cave after he left here. And we heard that prayer. So I'm thinking it's after this whole chapter kind of comes to an end. He writes the 34th Psalm which has been held on to tightly for people for thousands and thousands of years. And you'll know why. Because in it, David is doing what he said he would do in many other Psalms. If you deliver me, I'm gonna tell people that you're my firm foundation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sing it in church. I'm gonna tell people. Here's what he said in, uh, in the Psalm last week, 142. Um, Set me free from my prison that I might praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. A few weeks earlier, we saw this in Psalm 22. I will deliver, uh, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. In Psalm 51, a month ago, we saw this. It, when you forgive me, when I experience that, then I'm going to teach transgressors your ways so that tenors, uh, sinners will turn back. So we're going to see in this Psalm that he praises and he teaches people how to live rightly so that they too can experience God's deliverance. And then we'll end today looking at a New Testament application of this psalm and how it plays out. So in your outline, our first heading is this. The blessings of deliverance will cause us to praise God at all times. Not just some of the time, all of the time. An attitude of gratitude should permeate the life of a Christian in a way that is different from everyone else's because we know his deliverance, first in salvation and then in life circumstances. Here's uh, Psalm 34, the first few verses. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I'm gonna praise him because he's delivered me. I'm gonna do it all of the time. I'm gonna extol, that's a church word. Uh, it means to amplify, it means to magnify, it means to glorify, it means to add re to the reputation, the fame of his name. It means turn it up, that's what it means. Make it, I'm gonna talk about him and I'm gonna talk about him. I'm gonna extol him, extol him all the time. In 1 Thessalonians, it says this in chapter 5, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. Not some circumstances. All circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you were looking for God's will today, but it's that you give thanks to God. 
in all circumstances. The hard ones, the good ones. David says, when I'm delivered, I'm going to praise his name. I'm going to praise his name. And the afflicted are going to rejoice. Now, a better translation than afflicted is the humbled. The humbled. In other words, those people who, are, who have no pride and who can rejoice when other people rejoice, they're going to rejoice with me because they've seen God do something in my life. Let me ask you this question. When you see God work in somebody else's life in a way that is awesome, do you rejoice with them? Do you go, that's awesome? You do, unless you're competing with them or you're mad at God. Go, that's, that's my blessing. I should have that blessing. But when we're contrite and when we're humble and when we're, uh, there's, no, there's no pride in us, we go, yes. Go team, go team, <laughs> go team God. He's working it out in this person's life. That's what David's saying. The second heading, the blessings of deliverance will cause us to praise God for that deliverance and for our salvation. Now, I'm talking about him all the time, and then I'll talk specifically about what he's done in my life. So he declares his praise, and he says, look at my life. Look at me. I'm exhibit A. And it, this could be your life experience, too. And so he says in verses four through six, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. Wow. When David ran from Saul, the first thing he did was try to find weapons. I wanted you to read uh, 1 Samuel chapters eight through 20. You'll have to go and dig it up. He goes and he looks for weapons. The only weapon he comes up with is the sword of Goliath, which is, you know, drag that bad boy around. <laughs> it's impressive, but hard to wield. The second thing he does is he goes to Gath and then he, re he relies on his own abilities. I, can, I think I can get out of this. I'll play like I'm crazy. And he does. Finally, he seeks the Lord. What about you? What's the first thing you turn to in moments of pressure? What's the first thing? Who's the first person? Where do you go first? Too often for me, it's not first to the Lord, but he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. That's where he finally ended up. And he dealt with all my fears. We're going to see fear at the end of this psalm as reverential fear for God. This is terror. This is I'm scared to death that I'm going to die. And God met me there and calmed that fear. And then he says, the faces of those who seek the Lord, their faces are radiant. What does he mean by that? He means this. In, in Exodus 34, Moses was commissioned to go up on the mountain and receive from God the, the law of the covenant. He gets it on tablets. And when he comes down, people are like, whoa, your face is glowing. And so he covered it up. His face, his face was radiant. Why? Not because he'd been in the sun too long, but because he'd been with the Lord. Here's what the apostle Paul says. In, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. In other words, David is saying what the Bible says throughout. We often become what we worship. We are often transformed into what transfix our minds. So if you, if you just spend all day looking at one thing, worried about one thing, then you're going to become that worrisome person. You follow me? And David says, when you seek the Lord, your face is going to become radiant when he becomes what you're focused on. And that's it. 
There's no shame. I'm looking to the Lord in these moments of deliverance. Wow. Gaze upon him, regardless of your circumstances, and let him begin to transform you. There's so much truth in, in that kind of concept. It, it applies in many, many places in life. Uh, but that's what David is suggesting we do. And then he says, hey, this poor guy, I called out to God and he heard me. And it seemed, he's the anointed king of Israel. I, I, he's trying to just say it's an everyday practice, but I'm going, eh, maybe not. And then he says in seven and eight, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in me, in him. He's just saying, hey, the angel of the Lord, which could be the Lord himself, like a, an army. It's a military term. They're going to encircle you. They're going to protect you. I don't know if you feel that way, but it's true. And then it says, taste and see the Lord is good. This is not the taste of a four and a half year old trying asparagus. Mm, I don't like it, Poppy. I don't think you got near it, but okay. My grandson calls me Poppy. I don't like asparagus either, so there wasn't much of a battle. <laughs> you know, this isn't, this isn't try the Lord. This is taste. This is consume. This is contemplate. This is feast on him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Because when you do that, it's like being in front of a person with deep abiding character. And as you, as you understand them, they begin to impact you. The Lord begins to impact us and begins to change us. This psalm is quoted or referred to in the Gospels, in the Epistles, and in Peter's first letter twice. And Peter says, let me tell you how to behave and let me tell you why I'm saying that. Here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2. To a, to a community that was struggling with, with unity, in the church because the outside world was pressing in on them. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, of all deceit, of all hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. These all have to do with relationships. And then he says this, like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation now that you have tasted and seen the Lord is good. Now that you have tasted the Lord is good. It's like a baby wanting more and more to eat. That's what, that's what David's saying. You need to feast on him. It's going to increase your hunger and you'll see his goodness. And the more you see of that, the more you're going to want of it. So he is praising God. He's telling you God delivered him. And it's just going on and on and on. Let me ask you this. Have you tasted? Have you tasted and seen the goodness of God? Uh, it's our prayer that you would. I would say it begins with feasting on Jesus. Jesus said he was the bread of life. And we feast on him as we trust in him to be who he said he was, to do what he said he would do, that he's God, that he came, that he died upon, according to his desire, that he rose from the dead, and that he offers salvation freely to all who would believe. Feasting on that, you begin to go, God is so good. God is so good. Not only that, but those who fear the Lord, they're going to lack no good thing. Look at verse 9 and 10. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. Lions grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Even powerful young lion cubs can be hungry, but not those who fear the Lord, you holy people. What's a holy person? It's not a perfect person. It's a person 
who is living with integrity and what they say during the day, their talk matches what they do during the day, their walk. What they are and who they are in public is the same as what they are and who they are in private. And that is a person that says, I've set aside, I've set myself apart for God and his service. And that's what the Holy, and he's saying, hey, you need to fear the Lord. You need to be in, in awe of him, reverential awe. It's the kind of, in, in the South, we, we, uh, we say, yes, sir. A lot of children are raised that way still. Yes, sir, yes, ma'am. When we lived in Colorado, uh, our neighbor said, I can always tell when my kids have been at your house too long. I said, why is that? They come home and they say, yes, ma'am, <laughs> which our neighbor didn't particularly like. But uh, <laughs> kids didn't, I mean, we weren't going, you say yes, ma'am. It's just, you know, it was in our house. And uh, he's saying, I want you to fear the Lord. I want you to be in awe of him. So you, you fill in what that would sound like. Because David's about to tell us what it is, what it actually is. Now, he doesn't say we're not going to get, we, we may not have wants, He's going to say, you're not going to lack any good thing. And those are defined by God. All right. And he's going to instruct us. He's going to tell us exactly what it looks like to fear the Lord. The next heading is the blessings of deliverance cause us to teach others to obey God's commands for a fulfilling life. Hashtag blessed life. That's what we're talking about here. Now, you'll hear folks say, I'm, I'm too blessed to be stressed. What that means is their life is carefree. David is not too stressed to be blessed. He's blessed in spite of his stress, which is a radically different thing. We don't just try to get to a place where there is no stress. We see it and respond to it differently. And now we're living the blessed life. Follow me? All right, here's what David says in verse 11. Come, my children, listen to me, and I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days and who doesn't want, we, not all of us want many days, but we want many good days. We don't want a bunch of bad ones. Here it is. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Wow. It's defined in three simple ways. What we say, what we do, and how we treat one another. What we say, if you want to see many good days, control your tongue. It's very hard to control. Very hard to control. The back of your teeth may be chipped because of the, the words and language that comes forward, and you kind of grit your teeth to stop it. Your, blood, your tongue may be bloody because you keep biting it, right? James, in the epistle of James, there's a whole chapter on trying to tame the tongue. I like to say, though, I'm not a doctor. It's the only muscle in the body that's only attached at one end. So it's like a water hose turned on in the summer. It's going all over the place. It's dangerous. It's out of control. And it says things. <clears throat> if you've never said something that you wish you hadn't, well, it's coming. And Jesus said this. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So biting the tongue and gritting the teeth is not really what we need to be about. It's examining our heart because it's there that our anger and our profanity and all of that bubbles out. <clears throat> it's probably the last place in my life that'll be sanctified. The profane words that live in my head, that rush toward my tongue and try to pound their way out of my teeth. I'm still surprised when I think of things. And I'm like, oh, that's so 
unnecessary. <laughs> that's so inappropriate. And then if it's, you know, like an elder meeting, I might say, that's so unpastorly. But if I'm honest, it's right there. And that's when you need to do the spiritual CAT scan and go, what's going on in the heart? What's going on in the heart? What does it mean to fear the Lord? That you examine your heart and your words. Quit telling lies. I'm so always surprised at people that tell lies. We all tell lies. But some people make it a, a daily habit. And the little lies turn into big lies. And the big lives crush families. They crush businesses. They really are a problem. So quit telling the little ones because they lead to the big ones. Quit telling the big ones because they ruin your life and others. Quit telling lies. Speak the truth. Trust the truth. It can be your friend. Secondly, if you desire to see many days, <clears throat> turn from evil and do good. When you see evil, do you turn from it? When you see evil, do you turn from it? Here's the question behind the question. Are you not aware that evil is alluring? It's alluring. Or it wouldn't show up on the front page of every news feed that we have. The most grotesque, the most immoral, the most profane things make it to the front. And we look, we see, we read, and seemingly can't get enough of it. Turn from evil and do good. When you see evil, do you glance at it? Do you gaze at it? Do you move toward it? Do you participate in it? Hmm. Third, if you want to have, see many good days, seek peace. Jesus said this, blessed are the peacemakers. They're going to see God. Where are they today? We live in a culture that is divided and dissensions are rampant. And unfortunately, they're in the church of Jesus Christ. Peace means there's no hostility between us as people, as countries, and between us and God. So if you want to seek peace, then you eliminate hostility. In your relationships, it's pretty simple. Keep short accounts. That means you apologize quickly and honestly. You offer forgiveness. You ask for forgiveness. And you can move on. If you keep it small, it's not nearly as bumpy as when it gets large. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through, the, through Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're at peace with God. Shouldn't that show up in our relationship with people? Yes. Christian faith is not just interested, you know, in the vertical. It's interested in the horizontal and how we get along with each other. Romans chapter 12 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12 says, make every effort to live at peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If you want to fear the Lord, watch what you say, watch what you do, and how you treat one another. That's the horizontal fear of the Lord, how it plays out in our life. Our next category, the blessings of deliverance, cause us to pers persevere confidently in hardship. So David said, let me tell you, let me praise the Lord. Let me tell you my life experience. Let me invite it to be, let me invite you to have the same experience as me. And now he says, let me teach you what it, what it looks like to fear the Lord and what it means to endure while you're waiting on deliverance. 
<clears throat> the eyes of the Lord, it says in verse 15, are on the righteous. The ears are attentive to their cry, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's turned away to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those crushed in spirit. Now to use a dangerous analogy, imagine a young mom at a pool and there's a bunch of middle schoolers over here carrying on. They're not the evil that God is against, but just for the point of illustration, and she has little bitty ones in the splash pool. They're loud. They're carrying on. Where is her attention? Right here with her children. Not these people that are paying her no attention, unless that, you know, they get out of control. And she might say, hey, I'll be quiet. But you see what I'm saying? God's listening to his children. In the midst of their struggle, he hears you. And those that are paying him no attention, he's not paying any attention. The righteous cry out. It doesn't mean that the righteous have no need to cry. They cry out and the Lord hears them. So if you're in the midst of it right now, today, he hears you. So talk to him like he's listening. You might conclude if he were listening, he would do something, which reminds me of my childhood and my dad who would say things like this, if you understood what I said, you'd agree with me. No, I think I understood what you said, I disagree with you. And we can have the same conversation with God. If you heard me, obviously you would reply in the manner that which I need, or which I think I need. Now he's there, and he's listening, and he cares. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Maybe that's where you are. Brokenhearted, crushed in spirit. David understands that living righteously is not just easy. It's not, it's not necessarily carefree. It's not too blessed to be stressed, meaning there's no, there's no issues in my life. No, there are often issues. Verse 19, the righteous person may have many troubles. He just says it. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked, and the foes of the righteous will be condemned. Here's something that's really important to understand. When the apostles read this psalm, when they latched onto this psalm, they went, in their mind, there's not one person that's ever walked this earth more righteous than Jesus. And he had many troubles. He was falsely accused. He was beaten point, past the point of recognition. He was crucified. And when they crucified people, they broke their legs. You may know that Jesus' legs were not broken. And so the apostle John reads this and says, oh, this is talking about Jesus, the most righteous one. And it says in chapter 19, so the scripture may be fulfilled, not one of his bones was broken. What scripture? This scripture. And John realizes what we need to realize. Our situation and our outcome is not over until God says it's over. Regardless of what it may look like on earth, 
because in the arsenal of God's economy and salvation, there's resurrection. And that changes everything. So they watched their Savior die just to realize, oh, he was vindicated. Oh, yes, God has the final word because he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God, victorious. I see. Evil will slay the wicked and the foes of the righteous will be condemned. And then he ends with this verse, verse 22. The Lord, rescue, the Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. It says in, in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the New Testament, they went, there is more to the story than meets the eye for each individual life. And they would hold on to this psalm and realize that it spoke of Jesus and it speaks to us. The Apostle Peter was ministering to churches all around what is now Turkey, Asia Minor. And there was persecution happening to the church. There was deliverance. I mean, there was pressure being put on them and they were crying out for deliverance. And when there's enough pressure put on a community, a couple temptations are really evident. One is we start fighting against each other. And the second is we start fighting with the world outside. And the apostle Peter knew that if the church becomes divided, on itself, it will have no strength. And if the world becomes the enemy for which Christ died, the world, then there will be no mission. And so the Apostle Peter in chapter 3, he says this. He's going to state the purpose. So I want to end with this uh, for this reason. You can take that down. Too many people are reading it. Okay, I need you right here. I, I need to go back and become an elementary school teacher. They have their masters at keeping the room, right? Um, so we, we see what David did. I was delivered. Let me tell you, I'm going to praise him. I'm going to show you my life. I'm going to invite you in, and I'm going to teach you. This is, what, this is what it means to fear the Lord, and this is what you need to know if you're living a righteous life and you're pursuing him. He's right there with you. He's near, and ultimately, he will vindicate his causes you may, you may see it, you may not. And so I go, to, I go to Peter for those of us that are still in the situations that are happening right now because he's going to help us know what to do in the middle of a desperate situation. And I go to First Peter's little letter for this reason. The past four years have probably been some of the hardest years that I've ever faced as a pastor in how to pastor people because the divisions outside the church in our country and in our world have made their way inside the church. And people have actually left churches, left this church over a political position. And I know some of you are not going to like this, but it's not over a doctrinal issue. It's over a political issue. Other people have left churches, left this church because of the way we responded or didn't respond to COVID, which became, in my opinion, a politicized thing. 
And so when I try to talk to people and share the word of God with them, my authority, the word's authority, seems to be not second, not third, not fourth, but maybe fifth place. My news feed is first. My social media is second. My source of information is third. My family's fourth. And then I'll see. Now, the reason I get so impassioned about this is because there's something really at large is at stake. And that is the strength of the church. And we have to think about this soberly. And so Peter is dealing with this right now. So if you look around the country and the world and you're scratching your head going, I don't know what to do as a Christian. First Peter is your book. Just get in it and, and ask the Lord to guide me. Because we're not the first culture to deal with cultural conflict with our belief system. Here's what he says. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. He's going to state what he wants us to do, and then he's going to state from the psalm why. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil, insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days, and there's our psalm, must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Probably the reason 1 Peter has been so widely acclaimed throughout church history is it, it lays the foundation that the gospel is the foundational element for Christian living, particularly in difficult situations. So first, how are we to, to relate to each other? Finally, be like there's five words, be like-minded. Can we be unified on some critical issues? Is Jesus Lord? Did he die for our sins and rise from the dead? Can we say he is worth our life? Because he's worth our eternity. We, where is the point of unification if it's not with Jesus? Be like-minded. It's a willingness to conform one's goals, needs, and expectations to the purposes of the larger community. Be sympathetic. Care about what's going on. Care about other Christians who are marginalized who are criticized, who are ostracized in our city, on our campus, in our world. Love one another. This is brotherly love. This is Philadelphia, that word. We're to care about each other like family. Be compassionate. When we see other Christians hurting, struggling, uh, does it, does it hit us in the gut or do we just kind of move on? Be, be humble. Humility is losing its place in the Christian world. In the first century, humility was considered a weakness by the Romans and the Greeks. The inability to defend one's honor. And so when Jews and Christians would respond in humility, allowing God to have the final word, it caught people off guard. It caused them to pause and listen. And it still does that today. What would it look like if we were like-minded? We are sympathetic. We had love for each other. Wow. Instead of fighting and dividing 
Because there will be a day when we'll need each other. It's today. It's today. We need to listen. What about the world outside? Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. We are inheriting a blessing. We are receiving blessing when we should receive condemnation. So we know what it's like to be blessed and therefore be a blessing. Where in the world would they get this idea? From the Lord Jesus. From the Lord Jesus. How to respond. Love your enemies, Jesus would say. Bless those who persecute you. As one student said not long ago, how, how do you expect me to love my enemies when I don't even like them? Which is an application of the word love as we use it today. Very emotional. It needs to have a lot of emotion. Peter says, no, you need to treat your, your enemies rightly before the Lord. Hear me clearly, and I'm sure I'm not being clear, but let me try. I'm not, I'm not suggesting we never stand up. I'm not suggesting we never stand our ground as Christians. I am, standing, I am saying the way we do it is as important as what we do. And Peter's saying, trust the Lord. In these moments where you need deliverance, do not repay evil for evil, insult for insult. On the contrary, bless. Bless. We live in such a divisive culture. We live in a cancel culture. It is now normative and accepted to name call and belittle and character attack. It's not in the church of Jesus Christ. It's never been. It has become the way to win the argument. It's called ad hominem against the man. We don't talk about the argument, we just attack the person. Either social media, which is just a great passive, weak way to say very hurtful things. Sticks and stones may break my bones and words can crush you. I asked the team to pray for me. I have so much on my heart today. So thanks for listening so intently. Psalm 34, taste and see, the Lord is good. He's near to those that are walking with him whose hearts have been crushed, who are broken and their spirit crushed. Life is hard. Jesus would be ridiculed, the most righteous person. He would only say one thing, and that was to Pilate, just a point of correction, when Pilate said, don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? Jesus said, no, you don't. You have no authority except what's been given to me, you, and I lay down my life, and I will take it up again. When you're struggling in deliverance, trust that God knows it and he can make it right even on the other side of this life.
which is really hard for us to get our minds around. We can follow him. He is with us. And that's why this psalm appears in the Gospels and in the epistles, because the first church saw it speaking of Jesus, and they held on to it in very difficult times. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for words to help us to know how to respond. I pray that those of us who have experienced your deliverance, not only in salvation, but maybe in small and large ways in our life, that we would praise you all the time, that we'd be eager to teach other people that, it, that you're worth living for, even in the hard times. Lord, help us know what's in our heart because it will come out of our mouth. Help us to resist the temptation, to bend the truth, to lie. Lord, help us to turn from evil. Lord, help us to seek peace. And for those that are right in the midst, crying out for deliverance, Lord, I pray that it would not come at the expense of loving one another or out of a great compassion for the world around us. It's really hard to navigate some of the emotions, Lord, so we ask for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.